Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. His disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. It was just a year ago that Hezbollah guerrillas in the middle of the night poured across the Lebanese-Israeli border, killing several Israeli soldiers in a small patrol and kidnapping two. The mothers and fathers of those kidnapped have no idea what's happened to their sons. They've heard absolutely nothing in the year that's followed. But the Israelis then poured across the border and there was intense fighting for more than a month. And two places that we heard about again and again were Tyre and Sidon. Port cities, even today in Lebanon, very important port cities. And they were in the news night after night for more than a month. So this text today takes us back to that place. It is definitely Gentile territory, not Jewish territory. In all of Matthew's Gospels, he mentions only two times that Jesus was in distinctly Gentile territory. The other was when he ventured on to the west bank of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Gerasa, where he encountered a man who was tormented by demons, the scripture says. He lived among the tombs in the cemetery. Uh, people could not constrain him when he would go into these rages. Jesus came, removed the demons, who asked that they might enter into a, a herd of pigs. Definite hint that this is Gentile territory. Pigs ran over the cliff, fell into the sea, and they all drowned. That story and this one are the only two in distinctly Gentile territory. Let's take a look. The first thing we need to note here is that Matthew changes Mark's text, which is right before him. My Bible study class and others that are taught here in this church remind you that there's a reason why we have four Gospels and that we call them the Gospel according to Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. The story is told by all four of them, but all four tell it in slightly different ways. We are convinced that Matthew had in front of him Mark's Gospel. He sometimes copies entire paragraphs without changing a single word. He has in front of him the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint, when he quotes from the Bible, he quotes from the Septuagint, word for word. And the other, we believe he had in front of him a document that scholars call the quella, a German word simply meaning the source. A source of teaching materials that both he and Luke had accessible to them and from which they chose mostly parables, things that Jesus had taught. So as Matthew is following Mark at this point, he changes two very important things in this story. First of all, Mark says Jesus went into the territory of Tyre. Matthew adds, and Sidon. 
Mark says the woman was a Syrophoenician. That was the proper designation for a woman living in that territory in the first century. Uh, George Bernard Shaw reminded us that we're all indebted to the Syrophoenicians. They were the first people to use money. The Syrophoenicians first used money. But Matthew strikes the word Syrophoenician and inserts Canaanite. She was a Canaanite. Now, what is he doing? He is obviously taking his readers to long ago when Abraham and Sarah first entered this promised land and encountered the indigenous people there. For sure, enemies were north and west, Tyre and Sidon. For sure, the indigenous people were Canaanites. They were heathen and pagan. In the book of Judges, we have a text. Remember the period that Judges describes. Moses, with God's leadership, has led the people out of Egypt, crossed the sea, back to Mount Sinai. They've now received the Ten Commandments. They do not have faith enough to cross the river, so that generation wanders in the wilderness, the desert, from watering hole to watering hole for 40 years. Then enough of them have died out that the younger generation can cross the river under Joshua's leadership. And now they enter into a period known as the Judges. They were afraid of kings. They had had a king in Egypt for 400 years. They had seen the abuses of kings. So they chose instead to live as a loose, scholars call it, amphictyony of tribal groups, believing that God would raise up a common ruler when they needed one. And those judges were known to us as Gideon and Miriam and Jephthah, uh, Samson and others. In that book of Judges, it says, every Canaanite we should have exterminated. Should have killed them all. But since we didn't, there shall be no fraternization with these people. Matthew, in the way he frames the story, takes his readers back to that long ago time. So here is a Canaanite woman, a double outsider. Matthew wants his readership to think seriously about the other. Recently I was reading uh, my Wall Street Journal early one morning, and there was an article called How Your Brain Empathizes with someone else. It went on to say, how is it that we are capable of walking in somebody else's shoes? And this article quoted several neurologists who say they now have evidence that we have neurons in the brain that they call mirror neurons. That is, there are actual cells in the brain that make it possible for experiences we've had to be mirrored back to us. That makes it possible for us to identify with someone else. Uh, we see something, we hear something, we smell something, we taste something. And these connectors in the brain, these mirror neurons, make it possible for us to identify with that. Gail and I were on vacation when the little girl was abducted down in Portugal. Her family had gone from Scotland down to Portugal for a spring vacation. This little child, four years old, was abducted. When we heard it, we have a four-year-old at that time. She's since turned five. A four-year-old granddaughter. How horrible would that have been? But we weren't the only grandparents who identified with that story. 
In fact, within days, $5 million had been pledged across Europe for any information leading to the return of this little girl or the arrest of those who had perpetrated this crime. Thousands of people resonated with that story because of mirror neurons. Uh, we heard something that reflected into our own lives and made it possible for us to empathize. But I want you to note something. I read that article all the way to the very end, and the last couple of sentences said this. These neurons work best when the story we hear or the vision we see comes from our own culture. When the people look like us, walk, talk, act like us, it's very easy to see everyone else as somebody other than. And Matthew wants you and me to consider the other. Number two. Those who have just been through the study of Matthew with my Bible class should recognize immediately here that there's something very important in the way this woman addresses Jesus. Three times she addresses him in Matthew's account. First of all, she cries out to him, shouts, Lord, Son of David. A few minutes later, she forces herself much closer, falls down before him. It says knelt in your translation. It's the same word used of the Magi who arrived shortly after he was born. Paid homage to. Uh, revered. Knelt down before. Prostrated herself before him. Worshipped is the word used sometimes of the Magi. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This woman kneels down before him and uses the same word, the word we have in the mosaic on the south end of the Great Hall. Uh, the great hall. Kurios, it's direct address in this text, so it's kurie. Kurie, she says, Lord. And when Jesus said, no, no, it just isn't right for me to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. You have to understand that long ago, if you were not a part of a particular people, then you were lumped with everybody else. Greeks called everybody else barbarians. If you weren't a Greek, you were a barbarian. If you weren't a child of Israel, you were a dog. Third time, she says to him, Lord, Lord, even dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. Three times she calls him Lord. And in Matthew's Gospel, he's very consistent. No one calls him Lord who's not a believer. No one. Most of the time his critics call him teacher, rabbi. They never call him Lord. Those who are being critical, hateful, mean-spirited, never call him Lord. For this Canaanite woman, this Syrophoenician, to call him Lord three times means something very important in Matthew's Gospel. This woman is already a believer. She believes somehow that this Jew is pointing her to the one true God. She sees him as a descendant of David. But somehow, somehow, this child of Mary represents the very presence 
of the only true God. Mark Dara is an attorney here in our city. He's also the son of a Methodist preacher. When I came to Oklahoma, Mark's dad was one of the district superintendents. He served with great distinction at St. Paul's Church in Muskogee. He's now retired and living up in Bartlesville. But Mark, in, in addition to being an attorney, likes to write stories, things that have happened to him. And he has a mailing list. I don't know how big it is. He put me on it. I'm glad to receive his stories. He was recently telling about a woman he knows who lives on a 40-acre farm in Oak Fusky County. And now, past 80, she lives on that farm all by herself. In the most recent visit he had with Bonita Jane, they were talking about other members of her family, and she said, I buried my father. I buried my mother. I buried my sister. In time, I buried one brother after the other. And then Buddy did, died, she said. Buddy was her husband. Buddy came home from World War II, she said. Could not understand why he had not died in the Battle of the Bulls when people were dying all around him. Why had God spared him? Buddy struggled with that for 55 years. And then he died. And then our only child, our son, died. So I'm here by myself. And Mark says, then she looked right at him and said, the next time you're sitting with special people at Thanksgiving dinner, look around the table and wonder which one of you will one day sit alone at that table. This woman was up against it. She needed help. And in her need, she turned to this Jew, believing somehow he was embodying the very presence of the one true God. Number three, she cried out to him to help her. I need help with my daughter, she said. The next time she just says, help me. And the third time she says, but surely, surely even dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Uh, Matthew is trying to say here, Yes, indeed. God wants to feed all of his children. He wants to feed them all. His chosen people and those of us to whom he's chosen to reveal himself through Jesus of Nazareth, our Christ, our Lord. He wants to feed us all. The other night I was reading my most recent Newsweek magazine. There was an article in there by Gordon Marino. Gordon was saying, something strange has happened to me. I just got to where I cry. I tear up all the time. Can't figure out why I'm tearing up. He said, just recently, I was writing a story for Newsweek magazine about Joe Frazier. He said, when Frazier was heavyweight champion, I loved Joe Frazier. I didn't know him, of course, but I loved him. I admired this man. I, every time I had the privilege of seeing him fight, I just thought he had more heart, more courage than almost anybody I'd ever seen in my life. Fighting was his ticket out of poverty. And Joe gave it everything he had every time he crawled into the ring. But I was writing a story about his first fight with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad was taller. He had longer arms. He was quicker. And I found tears dripping onto my keyboard. I wrote about Joe's great heart, about his great courage. But he lost. And I was dripping on my keyboard. Said a few nights later, 
I got to thinking about one of my boys. Um, he liked to play football. As a little bitty boy, he wanted to play football. I didn't want anybody to hurt him. I wanted him to learn how, so I helped coach. And suddenly I had that image in my eyes, right there in my mind. I could see his sweet little face peering out through that helmet, through those bars, half afraid, half eager to be on the field. I saw him play as he grew bigger. But as I suddenly had that image of his face looking out at me, tears dripping off my chin. I couldn't figure out what was happening to me. Then he said one night recently, I woke up from a terrible nightmare. I don't often have bad nightmares, he said. Some little worse than others. This was one of those terrible ones where you woke up, wake up sweat pouring off your face and the person I was thinking about was my mother. She's been dead five years, he said. And, and I was sobbing. There was a wet spot on my pillow because I was crying. What's happening to me, Gordon wrote. And then he said a friend told him, it's because you've just turned 50. You've just had your 50th birthday. And you see your life running through your hands like water. And Gordon said, I think he was right. I see my life running through my hands like water, which drives us to ask, what is beauty? What is purpose? What is meaning? What is truth? This woman had a need, and she was determined that Jesus was going to hear her out. Number four. Jesus said, wow, what great faith you have. Now here you see, unless you've been coming every Sunday, sort of taking notes, paying attention to where Matthew is leading us, you may forget the person to whom he has just said, what little faith you have. It's the same person to whom next week he's going to hand the keys to the kingdom. But one night in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, he said to Simon, how little faith you have. Matthew tells that story allegorically, I told you, that Jesus is walking across the water when Jews know only one walks on water, and that's God. God Almighty walks on the waters of chaos and brings order. And that if Jesus is walking on water, it's because God Almighty is present in him. Simon says, I want to walk on the water. Ask me, Lord, to come walk on the water with you. Okay. So Simon starts out. And almost immediately, he's reminded of how strong the wind, how high the waves, and he starts to sink. Jesus catches him by the wrist and lifts him up and says, What little faith you have. Why did you doubt? And I told you this Greek word means, why did you try to go in two directions at one time? You were focused on me, then you weren't focused on me. You were focused on the storm. Why did you doubt? Why did you have such little faith? And now he says to a Canaanite woman, Wow, what great faith you have. What great faith. Meredith Vieira 
joined the Today Show last summer when Katie Couric left. Meredith had been with the Today Show only seven months when this great catastrophe occurred at Virginia Tech. And she and Matt Lauer were flown there, and the next morning, first thing, they were broadcasting from the Virginia Tech campus. All day long, she said, uh, they, NBC, were trying to bring that story, as ABC and CBS and others were. And she said, we tried to show people where the buildings were, how this thing unfolded, uh, as much as we were hearing about this troubled, terribly disturbed young man who had seen that 32 people died. And she said, this thing became all the more real to me because I am a wife and mother of three teenagers, and I couldn't see these kids, just kids to me, so brokenhearted without thinking of my own. To think about 32 of them carried out in body bags when it could have been one or more of mine. But finally, she said, when this 5.30 news was over, our camera crews went to the motel where they were staying, and I decided I was just going to walk around the campus a little bit more. It was starting to get dark. She said, I saw students quietly moving in one direction, and I decided to follow along. And as I followed along, I discovered they were going out onto the big drill field where their band practices, the Hokie Band. And when I got onto this drill field, I saw that lots of them had brought cardboard and they were making signs. And they had attached sharp pointed sticks and they were sticking them down into the ground. And these signs were addressed to specific people. The name of a girl, the name of a boy, uh, we will forever love you, we will miss you, we will pray to God for your family or whatever. And Meredith said suddenly there was a tap on her shoulder and she looked around and one of these young girls was standing there with her cardboard saying, I, I don't know what to write. And Meredith said, lead with your heart. Write whatever your heart is telling you. The young girl nodded her head and walked away to do that. She said, suddenly I was aware that people were handing out candles they had hundreds and hundreds of them, and they were handing everybody who wanted one a candle. And so she said, I accepted one of their candles, and then someone lighted his and started passing this light. And as it grew dark there on the drill field, suddenly there was light. Hundreds and hundreds of candles of faculty members and students gathering there in the field. I tell you, it was one of the quietest moments in my life. Nobody was saying anything. It was just all these candles burning, but I think all of us were aware of the presence. I believe we were aware of the presence. Suddenly somebody else tapped my shoulder. I looked around and there was a young girl, student, and she simply said, Madam, would you give me a hug? And she said, I reached out my arms and put them around her. And as I pulled her closer to me, she broke down. I started sobbing into my shoulder, and I sobbed into hers. But two important things had happened. We were aware of the presence, and we had embraced the other.